Now, when we talk about this grow cycle, now I know it's it's pretty catchy that you know. No, he doesn't. Does it sound okay, or does it need to go up a little bit, or because it always sounds different up here than it does? But like I can hear everything, and maybe in the back, you know, like that. So I just want to make sure. Let us know otherwise. So, <laughs> how many of you have heard the term "Grow Michigan"? Praise the Lord. How many of you have seen the logo, the little icons? Good. How many of you could just explain it and say what each one means? Okay, this is where, so at least everybody's heard of it. Most people have seen it. And a good number could probably explain it. And that's when it starts to get a little fuzzy. Let me tell you something. The GROW initiative, the GROW Michigan you know, program, is not just a thought up catchy thing that like, oh, I get it, agriculture kind of grows, we want our churches to grow, let's come up with some icons that enforce it into that motif. This is actually a biblical concept, and I want to give you just a couple of passages about this so you can have in your mind that what we're trying to present here is not just some like program somebody thought up in a conference office, this actually comes from the Word of God itself. Uh, one of the passages I like to go to, it's not actually in here, but it still works. It's not in your notes, but it's Isaiah chapter 61. This is the chapter that Jesus read when he um, went to his home church of Nazareth that day. By the way, the Bible is very clear about why he went to church that day. It wasn't because the church was so warm and loving and hospitable. It was because that's what his custom was, how he'd been brought up. And how did the church receive him that day? Very poorly, to say the least. They tried to execute him after potluck. Uh, I've, I've seen some pretty awful churches, but never once has anyone actually tried to, you know, kill me. Yet. <laughs> Yet. Like, it's coming, I'm sure. But, um, but, Jesus, but you know where he was the next Sabbath? Back in the church. Why? Because it's your custom. That's what you do. It's a day of holy convocation. So anyway, but when he stood up in church that day, and you can find that story in Luke chapter four, he quoted from the prophet Isaiah, right? And he basically said, this is my mission statement. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, right? And he said all the things he was going to do. And then he sat down and he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, right? So clearly Jesus was saying that portion of scripture is my personal mission statement. Now, Jesus was only here public ministry work for how long? Three and a half years. And I know this sounds a little heretical, but did Jesus win the whole world? No. no. He came to do his portion of the work to do the work that no human being can do, to be the sacrifice, right? To be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. I mean, he had a whole other big picture. But when practical terms of spreading the message to the whole world... He really only got the ball started. For instance, a lot of the people that Jesus planted seed for didn't even harvest until he was gone until the day of Pentecost, right? And so he had always in mind that what he was doing here was just a good start that would finish after he left, right? Now, what I find fascinating is you see that in his mission statement. In Isaiah chapter 61, go now to verse 11. Jesus was always in his ministry talking about plants because it was part of his mission statement. Look at this now, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 11. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord, will, the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Now, I didn't know if you catch that linguistic construction there, but as this or as that, so this. That is, that's just to say in the same way that the garden works, so will the spreading of the message go to the whole world. 
So when we look at Jesus, yes, Jesus used parables to break down big ideas into simple concepts that people could connect to. And he would sometimes talk about fishing. He would talk about sheep and he would talk. But over and over, what was the theme Jesus kept going back to in his concrete object lessons? He would always talk about seed and a farmer and the soil and the crop and the harvest and the grain and always this agricultural motif because he was trying to get involved, get in our minds that the work of giving the gospel to the world is like the work of a garden. Okay, It's a growth process. And that's the very first thing. If you look at your uh, worksheet there, I don't know if we're calling these worksheets or handouts. Handout is the term you like. To, I don't know, but the paper you have in your hand. Okay. But evangelism is a what? Cycle, not an event. This is the most important critical idea right here at the very beginning to get in mind. I promise you, if I go to churches in the Michigan Conference right now, good, faithful, solid Seventh Adventist church, and say, did you do evangelism? They say, yes, we did that last year. <laughs> and the picture they have when you say evangelism, they infer public evangelism, where it is a program that starts on September 23 this year called Jesus on Prophecy. It'll go for four or five weeks. We have our evangelists. We put our advertising. We have their budget for it, and it's a box called evangelism. And then all the rest of it is just, you know, church stuff. Jesus never intended for us to have that kind of rigid uh, box-like silo thinking, right? This in one container here. That the evangelism that we're supposed to be doing is an all-around continuous cycle where the public proclamation of the present truth is a vital component, but it is not its own thing separate from the rest, okay? So, you're going to see this as we go through. Again, evangelism is a cycle, not an event. Jesus used the practical illustration of planting and harvesting to describe the process of making disciples with saying such as a sower went out to sow. The kingdom had like a mustard seed. We talked to this. We go to the second paragraph. We refer to this process as the grow cycle. And it has five elements. And you could probably name them off if you're a good Seventh-day Adventist here in Michigan. The very first part is the preparation of the soil. Next part is the sowing of the seed, or the planting of the seed, right? Third comes the cultivation of that seed, cultivation of the crop. Then you have the harvest of the crop. And then you got to do something with it. you got to preserve it and put it to use. Okay, so the goal would be that that generation of crop then becomes the workers and the seed for the next generation around and around and around it goes, right? It's an ever-ending, a never-ending cycle. So let's, what we're going to do in this presentation is just walk through the biblical basis for those five different distinct phases of a one continuous cycle, okay? So, and we'll get into, we'll come back to that question if every member were involved, would your church grow? It is a trick question. As we go through this, you'll kind of see why. We'll address it more specifically later. But let's take a look at Matthew chapter 13. This is the well-known parable of Jesus, of course, talking about the sower going out to sow his seed. And it says in chapter 13, verse 19, that seed is what? Let's take a look. Chapter 13, verse 19. I assume that we've got pens out. We can fill in the blanks. Parable of the sower when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the wicked one comes and snatches that away, uh, what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the 
seed by the wayside. The word which was sown is the word of God. The seed that is sown is the word of God, right? That's what Luke chapter 8 tells us. The, when Jesus talks about the parable, it's the word of God. Am I saying it correctly there? Letter B, yes. The seed is the word of God. So, how did Jesus prepare people for the word of God? Did Jesus just walk up to people and he's like, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand? Well, I mean, maybe in some instances, but did he just start with barren earth like that? No. If you look at Acts chapter 10, this is a fascinating little passage. Here the, you get to eavesdrop on the apostle Peter explaining the ministry of Jesus to a man who didn't know Jesus, Cornelius. And listen how Peter described Jesus' ministry. Uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about, what? Doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. The evidence of Jesus' divine commission and his, his credential from heaven was his doing good. Over and over you see this. I've got a whole sermon on this, but I think it's a fascinating thing. You know there were people who didn't believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be? I mean, in fact, lots of people. And I know we're kind of thinking, oh, probably off the top of our head, oh, of course the Pharisees and Sadducees really questioned it and really pushed against it. But did you recognize that like, his own disciples were unclear about his ministry? Remember from the dungeon, John the Baptist? I mean, how, how hard, that, he was the one who said, Behold, the Lamb of God. But later in life, he's like, Are you the one, or should we look for another? It was his closest disciples who said, Lord, show us the Father. And he was like, and this was coming close to the end of his ministry. Can you imagine what that had been like? If he was like, uh, Look, we have really enjoyed being with you. You've taught us a lot of good things. You're a great teacher. But we'd really, for just one glimpse, we'd like to see God. It was like, that was my whole point. <laughs> if you've seen me, they didn't get it. But look at, if you ever do a little study of this, every t- single time that Jesus was questioned about his identity, he gave one thing, one piece of evidence to say, this is how you know what I'm saying is true. And it was, anybody want to take a guess? That's right, his good works. He said, look, if you don't, he said, we didn't even say things like this. If you don't believe my word for it, at least believe for the sake of the works. No one would do this if they weren't from God. So the works were the evidence that his words were believable. Now, I want to share a passage with you. Again, this is not in your notes, but you can put it down. DA92, okay? This is Desire of Ages, page 92. Because this is another kind of a trick question. When did Jesus' ministry begin? Well, the temptation to say at the baptism, you know, John the Baptist, and that's when his public ministry began. That's true. But did you know that he was preparing hearts for his word for years before? Mrs. White says this. This is from page 92 in the Desire of Ages. So this is not some obscure hidden reference, right? She says this. Now, read carefully so we don't misunderstand. Jesus was the healer of the body as well as of the soul. He was interested in every phase of suffering that came under his notice, his kind words having a a soothing balm. Now, Now, the next sentence is important. None could say that he had worked a miracle. So Jesus was not out setting bones and like giving eyesight to the blind and raising the dead as a kid. 
but he was still working in ministry. None could say he had worked a miracle, but virtue, the healing power of love, went out from him to the sick and distressed. Thus, now this is so cool, thus in an unobtrusive way, he worked for the people from his very childhood. Now, an unobtrusive, it was underground, it was kind of covert, but he was tilling the soil. And then she adds this, and this was why after his public ministry began, so many heard him gladly. The reason people appreciated and gave credibility to the words of Jesus were all those good works of Jesus. Okay? That there is an essential element before even coming in with the gospel message that you have to win their hearts first. And if you, uh, I'm, I don't know, I'm getting off the script here of the... Um, it's absolutely true. He, he, had a, he had a love and a disinterested benevolence like none other. But let me, when, I, I almost hesitate to use that phrase disinterested benevolence because it makes it sound like he was just wildly, crazily scattered. Well, I'm sure he loved and cared for everyone, but it wasn't haphazard in the sense of just like, I don't care what happens after that. I just want to show you love. I just, no, 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 no. He had a purpose in mind for the preparing of the soil. Let's take it to the agricultural model. What is the purpose of preparing the soil? Sowing the seed, right? Planting seed. No one goes out, even if you're just a you know, hobby gardener, right? You don't just go get the rototiller out and have a hard day's work and like, man, that is good. And the next day you get the rototiller and you do it again. And the next day, do it again. Come like mid-July, everybody else is starting to get crops up and you're just out there tilling the soil. Right? You know, I'm getting this ready. And somebody's going to say, well, ready for what, brother? You're not doing anything, right? And then the fall comes, the snow comes, and you're still just tilling the soil. Next year comes, tilling the soil. Could you honestly say you're farming at that point? Now let's think about it in the evangelistic cycle. Many, 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 many churches, including many Seventh Adventist churches, We'll go out and do good works and say, that is our evangelism. No, it's a phase of evangelism. It's preparation for the next part, of, but just done on its own. You can't say that's evangelism. If all Jesus did was good works, but he never came to give those good words and give that message that people needed, the eternal part, if it was stuck on the temporal, now the temporal is essential, but its purpose is to get us to the eternal, which is the word of God. So we're making sense there? So we're kind of skipping through here, and I want to make sure that we see it here in our uh, worksheet here. But underneath C, the Savior was seeking to find the key to the heart. And, the, and with the tact born of divine love, he asked not offered a favor. The offer of a kindness might have been rejected, but trust awakens trust. That was in context of his dealing with the woman at the well, right? If you notice how Jesus dealt with individuals, he was always looking for that in to go to the next step, right? And so instead of saying, getting his own drink and trying to stop, he just asked for a favor. But why did he do that? He wasn't just trying to make friends. He was trying to have an outlet so he could go to the next phase, right? And of course, we know this from page 143, Ministry of Healing. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. I like to highlight, anytime you have an adjective like true success, that implies that there's such a thing as 
false success. But what we want is true success in reaching the people. And how do you do it? The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them, follow me. I've got statement after statement. Mr. White is very clear that the workers of the... Here, here's one. Christ's Object Lessons, page 57. If you want to put this down as extra, extra credit in the notes, C-O-L 57. She said, the sowers of the seed, again speaking spiritually here, have a work to do in preparing hearts to receive the gospel. In the ministry of the word, there is too much sermonizing and too little of real heart-to-heart work. Now that hurts me because I like to sermonize. Kind of made a hobby out of it. In fact, I made a career of it. <laughs> but if all of our evangelism is just preaching and sermonizing, it's, let's say, incomplete at best. She goes on to say, there is need of personal labor for the souls of the lost. In Christ-like sympathy, we should come close to men individually and seek to awaken their interest in the great things of eternal life. Their hearts may be as hard as the beaten highway and apparently may be a useless effort to present the Savior to them. But while logic may fail to move and argument be powerless to convince, the love of Christ revealed in personal ministry may soften the stony heart so that the seed of truth can take root. Now, she, you know, hard as the beaten highway and stony but soft, those are all the references to the parable of the sower again, right? And if you remember the parable of the sower, the seed was the same. The sower was the same. His technique was the same. He went and sowed on this. What was the only variable that had anything to do with the outcome of the crop? It was the condition of the soil, right? And what I find great encouragement, and we might get into this later on, is that three out of the four were bad. Well, people go around, it's like, I I went to try to win souls, but this one wasn't receptive. It doesn't work anymore. No, (laughs) you just found stony ground or thorny ground or whatever the thing is, right? But the difference came when Jesus... That word of God, the sower hit that soft, receptive heart, right? And that's what the parable tells us. The soil is a metaphor for the heart. Then it sprang forth and produced a crop. So oftentimes we think about evangelism, about how we can get the word out. Well, we do need to get the word out. We need to plant that seed, but we have a work to do in preparing so you have a good, effective result, okay? So that's what we're talking about in the prepare cycle. So... What is the goal of this phase? Look at letter D there. Mark 3, the sower went out to do what? To sow. (laughs) The goal of preparing the soil is to sow seed. So let's look at E real quick. How long should the farmer till the ground before he starts planting the seed? This is another one of those kind of urban legends in the church that we need a really long, slow process of building friendships and establishing trust in the community and winning their hearts. And then, when the moment is right, when everything is just so, when the atmospheric conditions, the barometric pressure is perfectly... (laughs) and bathed in careful prayer, I will hand them a glow track. Though we have this idea that it takes a long time to make friends. And we got to be friends with them and, and develop these hobbies and this interest and all this, which there's nothing wrong with that, okay? But don't think of it that way, okay? The preparing the soil for planting does not have to be a lengthy process. Again, consider the woman at the well. Jesus is like, I got a few minutes here. How can I make some connection? They'll give me an in, right? We will often need to test the condition of the soil by planting test seeds. 
The process of developing the soil will continue throughout the cultivation process. So when we talk about test seeds, are we getting into this in practical? We're just going to... Okay, so I'll just kind of very briefly touch on this, but, um, you know, planting test seeds is as, as simple as just throwing out something spiritual, some religious-y, churchy thing, and just watch for their response. And it doesn't take long. We say, yeah, at church last week, and some of you are like, yeah, I got to go. Now, you haven't lost a friendship. You haven't told a friend, have you given your life to Jesus? You know, it's not that. But you can just see if there's an interest, Right. Or if they bring up an opportunity, man, the weather is crazy these days. Or it seems like, you know, there's war everywhere. And I don't even know if we're at war or not anymore. I mean, the United States, are we at war right now? Yeah. Most people couldn't, and they're like, I mean, I think so, kind of. I don't know which one, I don't know who with, I don't know. But there's a spirit of, you know, why? And you say, you know, it's fascinating. We were, I was a Bible study group the other week. We were talking about that very thing. And, oh, if, they, if there's an interest there. Keep going. If there's not, hold off. You haven't lost a friendship or anything, but you're testing, you're doing a little soil sample, a little test seed to see if they come up, okay? So Wes will talk about that more, but be always looking to find ways to be kind and be sweet and be winsome and friendly, but with the ultimate objective in mind, I don't want to just have friends for now. My goal is to have friends for eternity. Pastor Mark, you want to go to some planting? Let's talk about yeah, that a little bit. let's talk about... Planting. Um, a couple things that I, I was thinking when you uh, were talking about soil preparation. I think this is something that we have become, I think it's safe to say we've become very aware of the importance of this in our church. Yes. There's a lot of emphasis today on meeting people's needs, community type work and things like that. And the reason that we're doing that and talking about that as a church is because of the recognition that that's what softens the heart and opens the way for preparing or for planting the seed. I was reading recently in the book Desire of Ages, so I was just looking this up to check it out. It really struck me. How many of you have ever heard us uh, talk about the fact that um, just like John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Christ, so the Advent movement, the message, we have the Elijah message. You ever heard that? They have the, we're kind of the John the Baptist of the last days. Have you ever heard that? Mm. And part of what we bring into that sometimes in our discussion is just like John lived out in the wilderness and lived this very austere life, so that's what we're called to do. And so I was really interested and intrigued when I read this in Desire of Ages, page 150, paragraph 4. And she talks about the work of John and John the Baptist. He was called of God, of course. But then she says this, and she's, it's, it's the back, the chapter is the wedding feast of Canaan. And it's talking about Jesus attending that wedding feast. Uh, as he, and Jesus in his behavior, in fact, you remember in the eulogy, if you will, that Jesus gave of John the Baptist, he tells his crowd, John came neither eating nor drinking, and you said he had a demon. The Son of Man came both eating and drinking, and you call him a wine-giver and glutton. You ever remember that passage of Jesus? Um, and what he was doing, he was drawing a distinction between the fact that his ministry was very much more social than John's was. John's wasn't wrong. His wasn't wrong, obviously. But this is what Ellen White comments in Desire Ages, page 150. She says, the austerity and isolation of John's life were not an example, example for the people. 
They were not an example for the people. Now, I've had church members, and I, 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 I can say this. I can say things at camp meeting I can't anywhere else mm. without really offending people because you're not my church members, and even if you have been, <laughs> now you're not, and I work in the conference. So I can say, you don't know that I'm pointing you out. Amen. Come on now. I'm not trying to point you out, but I have had church members the most difficult, and I say difficult, I don't mean people that are always haranguing me, but the most difficult church members I've had are those church members who, there, there have been a class of people who get this idea that their role is to go and move up into the mountains somewhere and stay away from society and raise their families. So they're, and they're never, and when I say, hey, we're going to go witnessing, I don't have a problem with people living out in the country and living in the, but what I'm talking about is when it's time to go out and witness, it's like, sorry, it's us and our family. We're over here. We can't help the church. We can't, and I can never get them to do anything. And a pastor, his greatest need is church members who will be active in witnessing. And if you're austerity, there's a level of austerity we should have from society. But if your level of austerity is keeping you from sharing the gospel, it's not a biblical austerity. And this is the point she's making in John the Baptist is his example was not one for the people. Christ's example was the one for the people. And this is what we're talking about in soil preparation. You've got to connect with people and be able to evidence your care for them to open up the avenue to share the gospel. And uh, this is where that quote you said, I was noting the distinction between sermonizing. There's nothing wrong with sermons. Sermons, mm -hmm. God has used sermons from the beginning. He'll continue to use sermons. But she contrasted that with what's called personal ministry. Mm -hmm. And the point is that sermons will never be able to do what you can personally do. And I've shared before with people that when I, when I preach sermons, I mean, pastors can do both. And when I preach a sermon or I talk to a group, if I talk to you in a group like this, it's not nearly the same. If, it's like, if I go over to my brother here, now you're like, oh, we have to come over here. <laughs> but it's a whole different dynamic here than up front, isn't it? And when you're personal with people, there's just a, there's a different, there are so many levels of dynamic. Let me give you an example. In one of my churches that I pastored here in Michigan years ago, the church was very cold, just not very warm, not very friendly. And my wife and I came up with the idea of starting something in that church we called hospitality teams. And this is what we did. They had a fellowship meal once a month, and we thought, what would, what would happen if every other week we had people that would invite members home? So, in other words, let me explain to you how what it looked like. Um, we had... In that particular church, it worked out for us, I think we had six hospitality teams. A hospitality team consisted of two or three families. So you would get, and you could, if you have family you kind of hang out with anyway, that's fine. Get together with them and say, hey, we'll be a team. And you come up and sign up, we'll volunteer, we're one team, okay? So we had six teams, okay? Now in a typical month, you have the four Sabbaths, not counting the fifth Sabbath month. And so fellowship meal one Sabbath, I've got three I've got covered, I've got six teams, I've got two teams on every Sabbath. Now, your hospitality team, your goal would be after church to invite people to your home. And, and your team would pre prepare a mini potluck. Among your team, you decide what you're going to do. If you have a theme for Mexican or Italian or Asian or whatever, or just bring whatever, you plan that out. So you have this mini fellowship meal at your home. And you've got three families, so it can be at anyone's home. Sometimes in our team, we would rotate. 
We had we had an arm our, our home more often. You know, sometimes people are just like, I don't want anybody in my home. That's fine. That's why you have multiple. You know, you work all those details out. And then you would invite first the visitors. Okay? Those are your first invitees. Now, a lot of times visitors, especially first-time visitors, will say, no, you know, they're not going to. It's fine. They got an invitation anyway. Second, you would invite the members you don't know. Not your friends that you always see and hang out with. The people you don't know very well. That's your second. And then finally, you invite the people you do know. Okay? And you have two teams on every Sabbath, aside from fellowship meals. So it's almost like a competition to see who's going to get who. But what happened in that church is members got to know each other better. Have, have you... I don't know how, again, I don't know who I'm talking to either. I don't know how, <laughs> what your practices are. But for those of you who've invited people home, is it a different experience in the home than it is in the church? Now, I tried this in another one of my churches later, and somehow they just kind of did, morphed it into their own way of doing it, and instead of ever inviting anybody home, they just had, oh, we're on hospitality. We'll, invite, we'll just do it in the church. It'll be easy. But mm. it's a total different feel in the church. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And it's the same way in any context when you are able to connect with somebody on a personal level. There's a different type of relationship that develops. Now, I was talking with uh, Pastor Tom Hubbard. Tom had worked with me when we did our 14-week sessions of Emmanuel. Pastor Tom had worked with us. He actually been a student way back when. And he tells the story of a guy when he was um, working in the drafting and that kind of thing. There was a guy in the office that he worked with. In fact, he said when the guy started in the company, he had worked for another Adventist company. And Tom said the guy came to me when he first came. He said, "Hey, you're, Tom, you're a Seventh Day Adventist, aren't you?" Hey, listen, I worked. I worked. In, now this guy was not an Adventist. But he said I worked. The last company I worked with, they were Adventists. They were great people. And, in reality, it's the kind of thing you wish people would say to you, right? Because it's a perfect end to get to talking. But Tom said I didn't say a word. Right? This guy comes in, you're an Adventist, aren't you? And of course, he admitted to that. You're an Adventist, aren't you? Hey, I work with these You know, so that opened door. But he was nervous about it, and he never said anything. Well, then years went by, year after year after year. And that you here's the thing that Pastor Cameron had mentioned when it comes to preparing the soil. How long should it take? I wish... I could give you an answer. It's like three months, two days, five hours, that about that'll about do it, you know? But everybody's different. I've known people, so you take the woman at the well example. I've known people like that. Very you have to understand that even though you might be trying to find a way to their heart and build that relationship, the Lord may have been working on them a long time before you ever got to know them and, and have put them in a place where they're more receptive to the seat. You don't know. I've known people that have, it's taken them 10 years before they come around to be really open to the truth. I've known people that do it within a few months or even a few days. So you don't know, and that's where we get into the idea of test seeds. How do you know? Well, you're going to test it, the soil out, and we'll talk about that in a lot more practical detail tomorrow. So Tom had worked with this person, and after that, there's no opportunity, no opportunity. Well, as he began to uh, go through training and he came to an Emmanuel session. Now he's starting to think more about evangelistically reaching people, looking for an opportunity, looking for an avenue. But the guy was very, as a, as a person, he tended to be very 
you know, he wasn't really open about it, especially about anything spiritual. So little did he realize how much of an opportunity that was when they first met. But they worked together and what have you. Well, the opportunity, the time comes up when, when uh, he had a pro this co-worker had a problem with his truck or something. And Tom said, well, I can come over and take a look at it. And he said he ended up taking the better part of the day and had to make several trips to go back and get tools that this guy didn't have. And this guy was so impressed with the time that he took. He said their whole friendship took a different turn that day. And from then on, the guy, they were just a lot closer. And finally, the day came when they were together and uh, started talking about the weather, the crazy weather. And so Tom brings up the idea of, you know, the Bible. He says, you ever think about that in the context of the Bible and the second coming of Jesus? And he said, I don't, he didn't remember exactly how, what the guy said, but he said the whole conversation turned and the attitude was like, I thought you would never ask me. He said the guy just opened up and starts, oh yeah, I've been thinking about that. And Tom said, I realized that this guy had been waiting for me to just bridge the subject, but I was so afraid. And I think that we forget as Seventh-day Adventists, uh, and maybe it's not that we forget, there are disinterested people in the world. And we let the devil use them to eclipse from our mind the reality that there are also interested people. And interested people, people are interested in spiritual things, do not wear it on their sleeve. In fact, I've come to realize this more and more as I have friends from back in the day. I mean, I lost a lot of my friends from my pre-Christian life, and the ones who stick around, and I was talking to Tom, I actually talked to Tom the other day just to get the, to verify the details of the story and make sure I had it right. But he was making this point that, you know, when we become Christian, the non-crit, I don't know how it was for you guys, and maybe you, you grew up in the church, but I spent a lot of my life out of the church. And my life outside the church is not like my church life. And so, you know, when I became a Christian, the people I hung out with, they didn't understand, like, how do you explain, you used to really enjoy going to concerts and drinking alcohol, and, then, and now you don't do any of that? Like, what do you do? You know, they can't understand that. And so it's understandable when they kind of jump ship and it's just like, I don't know what to say anymore, what to do or how to explain this person. But what does that say about the people who don't abandon ship? Those friends who can't explain for the life of them what happened to you, but they still hang around. They've got, there's got to be something there. And I think that there are a lot of people that are looking for something. And what would they ask? What would, I, what would you, I mean, if you could think back, if you were not always Christian and you became a Christian, what would you have asked a Christian? I wouldn't know what to say. It's a whole different line of thoughts. It's a whole different existence. It's an existence that's foreign to a non-Christian. So it shouldn't be surprising. Well, they haven't asked me any questions yet about my faith. What are they going to ask? But if you bring something up, they might just be, immediately ready to engage on that. Some of them are, some of them aren't. So we're going to flesh that out in more practical terms. But there comes a time, like Pastor Cameron said, the farmer, when he goes out to, to sow that seed, uh, when he goes out, well, and then he gave it away. He's not the preparing the soil is only because he has to, to plant the seed. No farmer would ever think of going out with a rototiller every day and never planting seed. 
And it's laughable if we talk about it. It's laughable. Like, I mean, come on. It's almost stupid. Like, why would you bring up a stupid illustration? I'll tell you why. Because we do it all the time as Christians. I'm like, have you shared? Well, I haven't shared with them yet. Why not? Well, I just want to make sure I have a good friend. So you've been running the rototiller out of gas and refilling and filling and rototilling and you still haven't planted the seed. That's why I bring it up. Because we're afraid. Because we're nervous. Because we don't know what's going to happen when we might try to plant that seed. And I'm going to tell you what is awkward about it is the longer you wait to plant the seed, sometimes we think, well, i got to let the friendship develop. But has anybody here noticed that the longer you go developing the friendship, sometimes the harder it gets to mm-hmm. now get into spiritual things? Because now your friendship is so established and you're I don't want to lose this friendship. But there comes a time where you've got to sow the seed. That's the whole reason for preparing the soil. You, There's nothing. And I don't think we let it settle in. What will be the reality if that friend of ours does not make it into Christ's kingdom? Sometimes I think we tell ourselves, well, they're good people. And they're sincere-hearted and everything else. If they're good and sincere-hearted, they'll be open to the truth. And I'm not saying that you've got to shove it down their throat now or anything like that. But I'm saying we've got to be thinking if we want, if we're Christians, okay, Cameron, is, we, we talked about, uh, some of you know the guy, uh, the uh, illusionist, famous illusionist named uh, Penn Gillette, Penn and Teller, the uh, magicians, magic shows, the Vegas magic shows, and they've done TV shows and everything else. Well, what some people don't realize is that Penn Gillette is a very strongly about atheist. And in fact, he's the kind of guy you would really not want to witness to because he, you know, he's outspoken. He's an outspoken atheist, and you're, you could just be sure, like, like that's a guy that I'd waste my time on. Well, what's interesting is there was a Christian man who went to one of his shows and met him after the show and gave him a binding. I want you to think of that. If you know any hardcore atheists about just, yeah, if you're going to witness anybody, sure, give the hardcore atheist a bite. And I'll, you know, get ready for grace for the mocking or whatever you. But here's what happened, and you can get this on YouTube. He posted this on YouTube. Ben Gillette posted this on YouTube, and he said, um, in essence, and I'm paraphrasing, but how much he appreciates and respects Christians who proselytize, that is, share their faith. He says, I don't understand. He says, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in Christianity. But if you do, how much do you have to hate somebody not to share your faith? If you think, really think there's a heaven and eternal life, and you don't tell somebody else about that, how much do you have to hate somebody to not? It's like, can you imagine seeing somebody dying of thirst? Like right here. They're in the lobby out there. Dying of thirst. And you know there's a water bottle right here. I'm not going to tell them about it because what if they get upset? That would make absolutely no sense. We're not talking about dying of thirst. We're talking about dying for it. And so there's something we've got to understand that Nothing happens by accident. The Lord puts us where we are in life in connection with the people that we know at work, in our neighborhoods, because of what we know. And the Bible says the gospel is going to be preached in all the world as a witness. It doesn't say everybody's going to believe it, but it is going to be preached as a witness. People have to have opportunity. And if you look under plant there, in your handout on page two, number two, The first thing it says, we've already seen the seed represents the word of God. Why is it so essential to sow the seed? Let's just look at Romans 10, 14 and 15 real quickly. Romans 10, 14 and 15. If you did come in later and didn't get a handout, the handouts are up here on this chair on the right. Romans 10, 
Verse 14, the Bible says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. What's the essence of those two verses? How's a person going to believe if they don't hear? And how are they going to hear if nobody ever says anything? Right? So, if you follow along there, that's sub-point number one. And the question is, why is it so essential to sow the seed? To give people what? Put in the word opportunity. You can't make people believe, but people have to have an opportunity to believe, and they're not going to have an opportunity if nobody ever goes. Well, there's not going to be if nobody goes, because God has put each of us in that place to be able to influence others. So the time comes as we continue to seek to prepare the soil that we will plant the seed. Again, Pastor West Peppers will give some very practical ways to make, I don't want to just say practical, there are some very gentle ways, if you will, to bridge into spiritual things as you're testing the soil to find out if they're interested, ways that you can do that so that if they're not interested, you don't jeopardize the friendship. You don't have to just blow up the friendship and torch the bridge and say, well, you know, it's now or never. Believe in Jesus and we're done in our friendship. You're not going to have to do that. And the devil tells in your mind, well, that's what's going to happen. It's not going to happen. And you'll find ways, we'll, we'll get into ways to do that. But just I, what I want to leave you with today is there is no preparing the soil alone. You don't, none of these phases exist alone. This is a cycle and they one leads into the other. You're preparing the soil so that you can plant the seed. You're planting the seed so that you can cultivate the crop. You're cultivating the crop so that, for example, how many of you here like tomatoes? I'm talking about real tomatoes, not the things they sell in the grocery store over the winter. I don't know what they are. They're round, they're pinkish, but they're not tomatoes. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Nothing like a garden tomato, okay? So if you're going out and planting tomato seeds, why are you doing it? Because I want to weed the garden, right? No. I want to what? I want to eat tomatoes. I'm looking ultimately to the harvest and, and what that harvest is going to provide. And so it is in, in the cycle of soul winning here, this, this growth cycle, we really want to look toward the harvest. We'll talk about this in a little more as we go. Uh, but it, let me say this. It's not wrong to want people to become Seventh-day Adventists. Mm. It's almost like a bad word to say, oh, we're just trying to make Adventists out of them. Yes! <laughs> I make no apologies. Why? Because it's the best way to live! I was thinking about this recently. I was talking, I don't remember, some young person and I were talking and they said, you know, sometimes I get discouraged and I, you know, I wonder if I'm going to make it. And we talked about, you know, having hope in Christ and what have you. But I, I told this person, I said, you know, I've thought about this in my life. What would happen if, if the Lord were to come to me right now and say, I just need to tell you you're lost. You're lost. You're never going to make it. You're never going to make it into heaven. What would I do? Now, I used to live a worldly life. Would I go back to that worldly life? Oh, I don't know. I may launch into that for a period of time. I don't, I'd like to say I wouldn't, but let's just say that I did. I'm going to tell you what, I, what would not happen. It wouldn't sustain. I wouldn't sustain. Ultimately, ultimately, I can't imagine living any different way than I live as a Seventh-day Adventist because it's just the best way to live. Yeah, I'm going to go and start getting drunk again and waking up with hangovers. That's a great idea. No, it's really not a great idea. 
well, I'm just going to, I'm not going to give any regard to my health. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start smoking. I'm going to take up smoking two packs a day. You know, these are all health. The reality is, in everything that I have come to know in my life as a Seventh-day Adventist, I realized that God's plan for living is the best plan for any human being. I don't care what your profession is. Isn't that true? So true. And so why would I, why would I be, oh, you're just trying to make somebody a Seventh-day Adventist. Yes, I am. I am trying to make people Seventh-day Adventist. Amen. <laughs> Amen. There, you know, I had I heard a preacher recently bring up this idea that, that what it was we're trying to make people disciples, not Westerners. That's a new thing. Yeah. Western. We're trying to make these other people world Westerners because we're trying to make them dread, you know, modesty and all these things. You have to understand something. When we talk a Westerner, a lot of times we're talking American. Does it do any of you study Bible prophecy? America is what it is. Because Bible prophecy predicted that the earth would help the woman and provide a place that could that a nation that would espouse Christian principles. The reason that Westernism is what it is in many ways is because it's Christian. And so I oh, just throw these things out there. No, you shouldn't be ashamed to want somebody to be a Seventh-day Adventist. Um, that should be your goal. You want to have them join God's church? You want to have them active in God's church? Well, I need to leave you. There was a time when people didn't say they joined the Seventh Adventist Church, per se. They said, I came into the truth, right? There, there was a concept that this was not just another denomination, and a lot of Seventh-day Adventists now think of this church as just another denomination. So like, oh, we don't want to just be a Seventh-day Adventist, like it's a brand of so many different types of things. When correctly viewed, as you're talking about, it's not just a culture or a few quirky little distinctive beliefs, but most everything's in common. Everything is different from a biblical perspective. So our understanding of Jesus and end time events and daily living and the Sabbath keeping and the Old Testament, the covenants, the law itself. It's like you were talking about salvation, right? Like if, if you, if the Seventh Adventist Church teaches as the Bible teaches that the law is still in effect and that's the issue with our relationship with Jesus, we've broken that law and we need a savior for, well, another church might think that the law doesn't exist and what's the, these are tectonic plates apart, okay? So when people came into the Seventh-day Adventist church in, in times gone by, it wasn't just because they're friends with someone, and it's just another Christian denomination just happens to go on the seventh day. No, no, no. It was a whole understanding of Scripture from a new perspective. And it was a whole... And, and for instance, whenever you look at Acts chapter 2, when those 3,000 souls were added to the church, please note it, it did not say they were... And 3,000 souls were added to Christ that day. Now, they were added to Christ, right? He had just preached a present truth. There's Jesus standing, you know. But it said they were added unto them. They were added to the church. Because the church is the what? The body of Christ. But I can't tell how many times I have... I, I, I want to join Jesus, but not the church. Well, Jesus is the head of a connected body. Didn't I ever tell you that was my baptism? Oh, is that what happened to you? I was baptized into Jesus and not church. Wow. Yeah, that's a whole story. And it's a little gruesome to say, but spiritually, it's a way of trying to decapitate Christ. Right? Because you have, like, I just want to be part of the head, but I won't have anything to do with the body. I don't want to be connected with anything. It's just a spiritual up there. There's a big gap between here and there. 
Anyway, yeah, I have a lot to say on that issue. <laughs> break, but I, I want to say this, and I know the way we set this uh, up with our schedule this week, if you didn't get a schedule, I'm going to put these schedules over here by the door, too. This is what we're covering over the week, and this is going to be part one and part two today, and I understand people have other things you're going to do and what have you. Um, I just want you to have a heads up on that. But here's what we're getting at. When we, I, I understand it in part. I understand it in part. We want to make sure that people... And I think what we're trying to get away from is just cultural Adventism, where it's just like, yes. I know all these things, but I know for Christ. And I agree with that. But when we start thinking, you know what, and I hear this among Adventists, they say, well, no, I know some of my, my Christian friends, they're closer to Jesus than Adventists are. Let me just be plain with you. When you start thinking that way, you're never going to win souls to the Seventh-day Adventist faith. Mm. You're never going to grow your Seventh-day Adventist church because you yourself aren't convicted that this Mercy. is the truth of God. You're no longer motivated by the mission of the Seventh-day Adventist. So we're here talking about evangelism. Yeah, yeah I'm going to go evangelism and win souls, but I'm not going to win them to Jesus or his church or the truth and prepare them for the coming of There's something wrong there. So that's why we're being as, as plain and outspoken on this as, as we are. Now we're going to pick up on the thought after a break. Um, but we need we need a break, and if some of you are going somewhere else, we hope to see you with some of the other seminars at the end of the table. But we will pray. You want to pray? Sure. Let's pray before we break. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you give us, in your infinite wisdom, a role to play in giving this message to the world. Help us to do your work your way. Help us to understand from the Bible itself and from the guidance of the spirit of prophecy what instruction you have for us as we seek to be soul winners for you. So please bless all of our efforts. Continue to bless the, the, the studies that we're doing now. Help us to all return safely and quickly for your prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.